As I promised everyone, I might go into labor tonight. I'm pretty close. Uh, please do. It'll be extra exciting if I do. Um, there were some contractions during your reading. Also raising the bar, guys. Raising the bar, I'm just saying. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the panel discussion from our June 14th, 2016 event. Uh, at this evening's event, I was only... I think less than two weeks shy of my due date with my first child. And so there's some discussion of my pregnancy and some false labor, but uh, little did I know I would have to wait another month before my first kid came around. But this was the last event we had before I became a mother, so it's kind of special to me. And um, it features three writers from three different boroughs of New York City, Joe Oconquo, Rob Spillman, and Charlie Vasquez. If you want to hear the readings from these authors, you can just listen to our last episode. And always remember, at our panel discussion, we have the Magic Silver Box, which is a box that I ask our audience to put questions into. And then if I ask a question from the Magic Silver Box during the panel discussion, that audience member gets a prize. So let's start our panel discussion with Joe Oconquo, Rob Spillman, and Charlie Vasquez. Um, so I'm just going to ask some questions from our writers and then we'll, and then we'll take some questions out of the box and see who wins some great prizes. But thank you, first of all, for coming out and doing these great readings tonight. And, um, I'm having a really good time. Applaud everybody. Thank you. Uh, I don't know what you guys think. I forgot to mention that we were having, I guess, Rob was representing Brooklyn in that borough matchup. So I don't know what borough, maybe we all live in harmony. We're like a harmonious city of, yes, I'm he's okay, nods from the crowd, great. So <laughs> first thing I think I'd like to ask you, all three of you, what I found in all of, all of your work is this importance of music. Um, Rob, you mentioned it's true, each one of your chapters is introduced by, in fact, so much so that I almost was like, I could make a playlist for the evening from Rob's book. There's a Spotify playlist. There's a Spotify really... playlist available. Yeah, all, all 67 chapters. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so clearly, and, and music's very important throughout the, the story that you tell as well. And then, um, and of course in Jazz Moon, Joe, uh, jazz is central and you even have original song lyrics that you've written yourself in the book. And then Charlie, you actually were in some bands yourself. You were a musician and I think also I may have did you work with Diamanda Galas at one point? That's incredible. Who knows who that is? That's incredible. Yeah. Two, two and a half she, years. Two nice. and a half years. You're still friends. That's yeah. All right. So Charlie's gonna interest introduce us all to Diamanda Galas. Thank you, Charlie. No. Um so just uh, I guess uh how you see the connection between music and writing for each of you um, and, and how are you listening to music when you're writing? Do you, do you get inspired by music? Is it, um, and Charlie, I guess it, it, creating music, creating writing is their relationship for you. Yeah. So whoever wants to take that first. I'll, I don't mind going first. Great. Um, yes. To answer the last question, I think there is an absolute relationship between the two. Um, and I'm relating that to, to my experience. I began as a musician and I, be, I became a writer because I was a musician. Um, I was born and raised here in New York City in the Bronx, and at age 17, I moved to the West Coast to become a rock star. Uh, it didn't exactly work out, and I'm really grateful for that. 
But um, I was always an avid reader, and I grew up in a bilingual home um, where newspapers were read in, in, in two languages, and I studied some other languages on my own. Language was just always something that was important to me. It was central to my identity as a bilingual Latino. As a musician, um, in my first band, our singer was great. He had a great voice. He had a great stage presence. He was this really good-looking guy. Uh, but he couldn't write. He he couldn't he he couldn't tell stories in in the form of of lyrics. Um, so my first band leader, basically the guy who bought all the synthesizers and the samplers, <laughs> said to me, he said, "Well, you seem to be you know you're reading Charles Baudelaire and, and you read this and that and that. Maybe you should write lyrics for Donnie because he doesn't know he can't write for shit." <laughs> and I thought, all right, well, I enjoyed writing in school, like when I had to write papers and so forth, but I, I never did it on my own other than like depressing teenage poetry, which I burned. But I, at age 17 or at age 18, I'm sorry, 18, 19 into 20 maybe, I started buying little uh, artist sketchbooks, those, those black sketchbooks with the unruled pages in them. And I would, in these little cafes and bars in Portland, just start assembling these random things that were very marijuana inspired mm -hmm. uh, and other things inspired. And a lot of those wound up becoming song lyrics. Uh, and they were like these little compressed stories. And then from there, they grew into, uh, I guess, microfiction texts. And they just kept growing until by age 25, with no training, I, I sat down and said, I'm going to write a novel because I had such a crazy life. So I did it all backwards because of music. I started writing first, and then now I'm studying it. But um, for me, I became a writer because I was a musician. Uh, well, for me, uh my favorite writers are the ones who write musically, where there's there's music in the in the in the style, um, where there's whether it's jazz inflected or otherwise, and and I, I have a huge love of of jazz music, and of course, since this this my novel Jazz Moon takes place uh, in the, the the jazz age, it seemed appropriate to. To to uh, have us to utilize a style that was very musical, so I intentionally was trying to kind of duplicate some of the rhythms and melody, some of the rhythms and cadences in in jazz. So uh, yes, it was music and jazz in particular was was central to to the writing style in this novel. Uh, yeah, for me, I you know my parents are classical musicians and I sort of grew up in that world so but I also I came of age during the um, punk era so and lived in Baltimore and and uh, was in high school and college for the DC hardcore scene so my kind of rebellion against opera was <laughs> going into the you know DC hardcore scene and um, music has always been you know, incredibly important to me, and I, uh, and it was kind of a unifying principle for the book. Is my relationship to music was what what kind of bound it together. Um, yeah, you but seem, you seemed to, there seemed to be a real turning point for you when you heard Psycho Killer. Yeah, when I heard uh, Psycho Killer in the middle of the night on college radio and in Baltimore, I was like, oh my god, you know, there are people out there as weird as I am, and. Um, that sort of opened the door door for me. And then, you know, when I moved to New York uh, in 86, I lived on the Lower East Side around the corner from Sonic Youth, just 
happened, they were in the Cristador right around the corner from me. And I would run into them and uh, say, hey, where are you guys playing tonight? And like, oh, CBGBs. And like, oh, cool, we'll go. And so, you know, I, I got kind of sucked into that world too. Yeah. I feel like I, I moved to New York in 98. And um, I feel like uh, if you were in certain neighborhoods, you always ran into Sonic Youth. Like they, they were just, you always ran into Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore somewhere <laughs> if yeah. you were in a certain part of the city. Um, but Rob, speaking of the structure of your book is, is done with, you know, uh, music track to each, just to ask you guys about the structure of your books. And I, and if it started that way for you, Rob, or, and this is for all of, all of you, when you're writing a work and you can talk about contraband or, or what you're working on now, possibly Charlie. Um, and then also with jo jazz moon, Joe, um, the years that you spent writing these books, what is the revision process been like for you and, and how different does the book look from the beginning to the end process? Can you talk through that a little bit? Oh, no. Uh -huh. no, too traumatic. No, it, uh, it took me 10 years to write the book and seven years were kind of abject failure, trying to write it linearly. And, um, it wasn't until seven years that I in that I found the structure that worked for me, but I, I had to spend all that time, excavating the material and trying to figure it out. So, how, how, yeah. How did you find that structure then? How I just you... kept playing around with it and yeah. trying to figure out how to move. I was trying to figure out how to move the, the Berlin just post-wall stuff forward. And then I was like, oh, why don't I just shuffle cut? And then that, that kind of opened things up for me. But uh, yeah, it was, it was seven years of like complete failure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was the music yeah. always there as a guiding principle? For yeah, you? music was woven throughout. But then when I landed on the structure, I pulled things out and made the relationship more mm -hmm. explicit. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the then it became the juxtapositions became uh, much more explicit and overt. But I had I had to write my way in into it. You yeah. would think as an editor, I would be able to see it. Uh, yeah, I had to editing and writing two two different beasts, right? Yeah. Um, Joe, Charlie, what about your failures along the way? Let's talk about. <laughs> Where do, do we have enough time? Yeah, really. <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, well, I, I was talking, I think, to Philip earlier. To some, I went. It's all a big blur, but I think failure is so important to getting better at whatever it is you do, because at least you can look back and go, "Okay, this is this is." I thought I had my best shot. I thought I was. I, I thought I was in a good place. Um, and I was shot down for whatever reason. So I think if you're determined enough to to succeed, then you sort of go back to the beginning and you do another revision. And then I've been getting shot down by agents left and right. So like I'm I'm living in the midst of this. But to me, it's it's kind of exhilarating that I'm actually getting um, these these stories live in your head for so long, and 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 they're they're only something that you know about, and the few people that if you do like me do talk to, and like my mom is a great. Um, she's a great sort of like re reflecting pool for whatever I'm working on because she 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 approaches things from such a non-artistic uh, place. You know, she's she's very practical. You know, she's she's very much like this working class Puerto Rican mom, and so she kind of really grounds me. But I I think that you you kind of have to fail a lot to get good at anything. I mean, you're going to have miserable, if you're, if you're an opera musician, you're, you're going to have these miserable rehearsals. It's, it's akin to submitting a manuscript that's not ready yet. 
Um, but for me, the revision process is my favorite. I've grown into the revision process because now I used to spend a lot of time on the first draft trying to get everything spiffy as I went. And when you're writing, writing versus editing, I had someone, uh, Jorge Volpi from Mexico City, we hosted at the Bronx Museum recently in collaboration with Penn. And he was talking about the structure of the brain and how the brain processes storytelling. And what he told us was that when you're writing a story and, and you're, sort of con you're, you're sort of pulling it out of the air, out of the ether and making it something tangible, that you, the, the creative side of your brain, the right side of the brain is doing the work. When you start to, if you make a typo and you hit backspace to correct the word you just typed wrong, the left part of your brain, the structural part, the rule oriented part comes into play. And now you've just turned, you've just put this on hold to do this, which a lot of is ego. So um, I just blitz my way through the first draft. I call it the vomit draft. And then I spend time, then I sort of lounge in, in, in each of the scenes in the rewriting. Really, really the writing happens in the rewriting. I've had, to, I've had a lot of failure to realize that. So um, my, the revision for me is the fav my, my favorite part. I, I agree with that completely so in terms of the revision. That, that's really where the writing and the, that's really where, where the writing and the story uh, truly happen. Uh, my novel started as a short story in 2004. Um, I found out about a short story contest and the, the word limit was 1,500. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh yeah, I can write this story in 1,500 <laughs> words. And then you know, six, 12 years and 93,000 words later, here we are. Um, I tend to write, I, I, I tend to, to do that in terms of, uh, I vomiting. <laughs> no, no, I, I need to start vomiting. Uh, I tend to, to edit as I, as I go along, cause I try to make that first draft as, as spiffy as I can and then make it even spiffier. But I think I'm about to start a new piece, which I think is going to be either a short story, or maybe a novella. I'm not sure. And I think I'm going to try the vomit approach just to just to get it out there, and then go back and 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 spiffy it up. So yeah, the vomit approach. First you fail, then you vomit, then you have a book, guys. Simple. So that's good. I love it. Um, so you guys, you actually, we're all talking a bit about editing versus the writing, and. I, I love having all three of you here tonight because you are three writers, but you're also three um, people who are very involved in the literary community and do different things with the literary community. Um, Rob with Tin House and other projects, and Joe is the prose editor for Newtown Literary, and um, Charlie at the Bronx Writers Center. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your own writing and your... Um, your other work within the literary community have a relationship to each other or um, or not, or you know, how, how that how that works together for you. Hmm. I, for me, uh, it's all of a piece. It's all about engagement. So um, uh, I don't I don't consider anything I do work. So it's all sort of trying to live an artistic engaged life so i do that by whatever means i can whether it's writing through tin house or um you know being the head of the pen membership committee or working with whatever whatever i do 
you know, so it, it all feeds each other. And, um, you know, I'm also, um, you know, sort of aware of what's out there so that, um, and so I hold myself to those standards on my own writing, see what, what is possible. So it definitely influences it. And does, does that, is that good? Does that ever make it difficult for you if you're? Yeah. It, it, yeah. Purposefully difficult. I mean, it, but I mean, you have to turn that off at a certain point, you know, and, and vomit uh, and vomit. But, uh, but I don't know. I mean, if you're not holding yourself to high standards, you know, my, my goal was to fail as well as I could. That was my goal. And, you know, I, I, I think anybody who says that they have created a successful work of art is lying. Um, just because that there is no, you know, there is no perfect piece of art. You can only do as well as you can, and you know, yeah. uh, at a certain point, you have to let it go. It's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah, it only took me ten years. So yeah, that's so fine. <laughs> Easy. And what about what about um, what about what you do at the Bronx Writers Center, Charlie? Does that I think you also run writing workshops there as well? Is that true? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. We have a. Uh, Depending on the funding streams as they come in throughout the year, we, we, we've done uh, different programs in the two and a half years I've been there. I think what I've learned so much, uh, and I, I'm not an educator um, by trade, but I've sort of fallen into that. I have a lot of young, especially emerging writers coming to me, and you know they don't understand how publishing and the literary scene works. It's, it's, this, very, it's this very mystical thing to them. But... You know, everybody, so many people have an idea that they want to write about. They have a book in their head and, and they come to you. And what I've had to transcend is uh, the, the solitary act of writing um, and how I would lock myself up in these really gloomy <laughs> rooms in, in Portland, Oregon, or in Brooklyn, or in the Bronx, and, you know, crank out stories. Some of them work, some of them get published, some of them get trashed. Um, and it's a very solitary act. And, and I think that when you get ready to start showing it to people, if, if, if you're going to do the beta reader, beta reader approach and you're moving toward the publishing thing, then it becomes a collaborative thing and you sort of have to remove your shell and, and sort of share that with other people. But when you work in, when you direct something like the Bronx Writers Center, uh, and I had to learn very quickly, um, then writing becomes as public, it becomes a community um, activity. And I'd have to say that we were funded by the NEA. My predecessor actually uh, got the grant. Uh, she left the middle of the grant, and I sort of had to fulfill it. Uh, but we got funded by the NEA for the Bronx Memoir Project. And, and what that was, um, I, I had, we had a bunch of money. I created 25 free memoir writing workshops throughout the borough in an effort to collect testimonies or memoir fragments really i think there was maybe a, a one or two thousand word limit so they're like really these little glimpses into these people's lives and uh out of those 25 workshops we had about between 50 and 60 electronic submissions and maybe lost a third of them because in the workshops people tend to uh, write with pen and paper and their job if they wanted to get published in the book they had to type it out so i was a lot of it was professional development for writers it's, it's great that you start with a paper and pen draft, but then it be, needs to become electronic if, if you hope to get published. And you'd be surprised how many people didn't know that. 
Um, but when the stories were all collected, and I edited them, I've edited three anthologies. That was my third one. And I saw that what the biggest lesson I learned from editing that book was that you can tell an unforgettable story in very simple language. And you can also just you know, shoot off a bunch of literary pyrotechnics and, and never get to the, the <laughs> middle of a human story. I mean, some of these stories just blew me away. Um, a lot of them dealt with immigration, with losing loved ones to violent crime, the, uh, the burning apartment buildings phase. I mean, terrifying. A lot of them were, te- a lot of them, a lot of them were very tender. A lot of the Italians who remembered their grandparents uh, having gardens the way they did in Italy, in these little, in, in these more green areas of the Bronx, um, and it was it was a huge. I learned more from working on that book as an editor and listening to other people, mm-hmm. and uh, being brought into these beautiful, unforgettable stories with just layman's language, uh, and just how touched, how much I learned as a writer from from working with writers who were just beginning or felt that they didn't have the literary skills to sort of dazzle on the page, but they, they're just fantastic storytellers. You know, a story, if you, if you can tell a story that can touch people in simple language, you are leaps and bounds ahead of, of someone who has a lot of fireworks to shoot off, but never gets to the, the, the universal human truths that we all know. So that's what I'd say. Wow. Yeah. Joe? Um, I noticed that as an editor, I, 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 I um, see people's mistakes and I know what not to do when I'm writing. <laughs> I think that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and then learning to edit others' works and your own work, I think. Two different, two different things. A good mm-hmm. editor, man, yeah. is like an angel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you just get, you can't see your own work at yeah. a certain point. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah. All right. I want to ask you guys one more question and move on to the silver box for the prizes. But, um, but I really, I wanted to ask you guys because this is, I found through in all of your work, this idea of um, Joe and Jazz Moon, your character, Ben, he's traveling from place to place from the American South to New York to Paris, kind of trying to find where he fits in and where his home is. And he's trying to, come, you know, and be comfortable with himself and find, find his sense of, of home, I think. And, um, and Charlie, I mean, you have a character who literally goes underground, (laughs) um, you know, searching and, uh, and then Rob, uh, in your memoir, I mean, is this huge through thread of, of, um, of where is home, you know, and, and, and looking for it and all these places. And, and is that is place really where a home is? So I guess just how important is the idea of home and how did you find a sense of home for yourself to become the creative people that you are, which is a kind of a huge question, I guess. Um, and you can answer it as simply as you just an angle of that, but just finding the sense of your own home, and how important is that or not to you to, to live the creative life that you want to live? For me, I think for my character, home is not so much of a, a geographic or physical place. I think it's an internal place. He's, it's, it's very much a creative, a personal and creative odyssey. And he's really searching for self-worth. 
And I think that when he find when he starts to find that self worth, that's when he's when he's home, even though he's not. When he finds that self worth, he's not physically in the place he was born, or even in his own country. But when he finds that sense of value for himself, that's when he's when he's home. And as far as the second part of your question, in terms of finding uh, home as a creative. Yeah, I'm it, it, that you can take one or two parts of that question if you want, but just like finding a sense of a place where you feel like you're able to create is this place important to you? Is it something else that place in terms of geographic place, physical place? However, um, I don't know. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I started writing. Uh, I, I left New York in 1988 to live on the West Coast. The original idea was just to go for a few years and go to college, which I started and never finished because um, I was rock and rolling. Mm -hmm. um, I came back in 2006, like 17 years later. Um, and when I went to the West Coast, looking back now, I know Contraband's over five years old, so it's like now I can sort of talk about myself as, I, as another person, as the other person I was back then in a lot of ways. I didn't realize it while I was writing it. But for a long time, I was sort of living a double life um, as a queer person. And there was West Coast Charlie, who was having a great time. <laughs> and then there was good Puerto Rican mama's boy Charlie, who would come back to New York once or twice a year and uh, you know catch up with the family. And there was a lot of editing of my personal life. <laughs> um, and that got really tiresome. It got really old. And when I got back in 2006, the contraband has this very frenetic pacing. There's a lot of constant movement um, because I was moving around from city to city while, and then I was traveling in between. And I got back and I like had, you know, I had like $500 in the bank and I couch surfed with mom for three months and felt like the biggest loser in the world. Um, and I was writing it that whole time. I had a laptop that still had a floppy drive, and my uh, my job at the time, I was working at the YMCA on 14th Street and 6th Avenue, where I still go, um, and the computers there still had floppy drives, so Contraband was my last floppy project. Wow. And I would take this disc with me. Now we have USB, right? So I've got a USB drive. Um, but that's what you did at the time. And I would take it from computer to computer and just keep adding to whatever I had worked on previously. But looking looking back on it, uh, coming back to New York in 2006 was, to use a metaphor from Rob's reading, the, the reunification of two people and becoming one and, and not being like this person with no personal life around his family. And then the sort of wild rock and roll, you know, guy on the West Coast getting into dubious situations because it was fun. Um, I sort of grew out of that and just became, you know, sort of the, the out queer Puerto Rican person in my own community now. My community has grown up, in, you know, in, when I left in 1988, there was no way in hell I was going to come out to my Puerto Rican family. And uh, there were some casualties, but um, that's, that, was part of the, that was part of the growth where I didn't have to have the secret life anymore. I could just be one Charlie. And... Um, that was that, that that required coming back to the Bronx where I began um, and figuring out what I want to do, you know, what what my path is for for the rest of my life. So 
Um, I didn't know that. I couldn't have told you that while I was working on that because I was de I was hiding in people's basements and you know it was it was it was crazy, but there was a way to channel all of that chaos and, and, and just to get to give that chaos to someone else you know, um, in, a, in a fictional setting. Thank you for reading it tonight. Yeah, it was really weird. <laughs> it felt like reading someone else's story. Um, for me. Um, Brooklyn has been home now for 21 years. So that feels like a physical, but it, and I've sort of chosen to be engaged here artistically, but also um, I have two kids and that kind of changes the equation. Like I, my parents were kind of artistic, itinerant artists and kind of floated around and I made a decision that they would have very stable childhoods that we would travel a lot but they would always have a home mm -hmm. so they've only known one home you know my daughter's 20 and you know she comes home from college to the same place that you know where she grew where up she grew up yeah wow so that was a conscious decision not to to do that so yeah so does that does stability that was different from your own upbringing and being in one place do you think that feeds your creativity in a certain way well it it uh reconciles kind of my desires to be because my my tendencies are to like go to paris tomorrow you know i mean that that's like or if someone here said hey let's drive to you know you know i don't know montana, nope. montana. montana. there let's go um <laughs> Careful, Charlie. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I once uh, at a dinner party, a friend. Actually, it was Pete Wells, who's now the main food critic of the Times. He threatened to sing the entire "Wings Over America" album unless we went to Niagara Falls at that moment, and we did, and we did. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's my tendency. So, that's amazing. Yeah, that okay. kind of squashed that a little bit. Not squashed it, but <laughs> no. I've been able to. <laughs> you know, channel it, let's right. say, constructively. So, like, you know, I edited the Penguin Anthology of Contemporary African Writing, so I I went to Africa a lot. Mm. But that was, like, constructive. That wasn't a get in the car in the middle of the night to go to Niagara Falls to go to the Wax Museum there, you know. I mean, it was... <laughs> nice. Sounds amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah? They have, <laughs> and they have an Elvis Museum there, too. At Niagara Falls? In Niagara Falls, they have a little Elvis museum, like with one of his Cadillacs. And my favorite thing is they have um, a glass case with a paperback of The Omen in it, uh, with a picture of him getting off a plane holding a paperback of The Omen. <laughs> and so, so it's supposed to be so his long. copy of The Omen. Yeah. Wow. So, so, let's all go. Let's all go. So one of our prizes tonight is a round trip to Niagara Falls. <laughs> no. I wish. In a Toyota Corolla. Or, or in a Toyota Corolla. I or didn't just, see that like, in Niagara Falls. You would, say, you would just go straight to Memphis. Let's go to yeah. you know, Graceland. You're going to do it. Um, all right, guys. Let's get <laughs> wow, into this magic. box. I know. There's it's so ma much magic in this box. What are we if do? only you guys could see the magic. <laughs> you see the magic? I'm seeing the magic. <laughs> <laughs> Feel like Repo Man when yeah. they open the trunk. It's I know. Okay, guys, um, we're gonna start off with a single question for one author, and we need to figure out who's gonna get this question. 
So I'm thinking of a flower. And I want to know what flower you guys all think it is. And whoever's closest will get the question. Hmm. I have a flower in my head. Go, Charlie. Well, I doubt it's a flor de maga. A what? Flor de maga is the Who official, knows? The official gonna... flower of Puerto Rico. It's this big red thing that women put ah. in their head. Nice. That's because I have a story with it. It was on my mind. <laughs> that sounds beautiful. Uh, Snapdragon. Ooh. <laughs> That's good. Uh, chrysanthemum. Okay. Well, it's going to go to Rob because my answer was so much more boring than the first two. I was thinking of a geranium, guys. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. Are you ready, Rob? I'm, I'm mentally prepared. You're what? I'm mentally prepared. Mentally yeah. prepared? Oh, well, this is interesting. You ready? Mm hmm. So the, the, the asker of this question is going to get a gift card to Sweet Leaf Coffee. Ooh. Fine coffee establishment with four locations, two in Long Island City, one in Williamsburg, and one in Greenpoint. Delicious, delicious coffee. Rob. Yes. <laughs> when does your writing arouse you the most who asked this question wow. i can only imagine <laughs> yeah i did i did say only sexy questions right wow arouse you the most wow that's a great question that's a great question <laughs> can i get a lifeline on this one uh, <laughs> who would you call yeah these guys um <laughs> um Arouse me the most. Or maybe you're writing, or maybe when what kind of what reading arouses you? What reading? Oh my god! Um, Arouse in what way? Yeah, really. Um, it's open. Well, writing it's well, it's hard because uh, writing memoir and ten years of writing it, um, you know. Uh, I think early draft, like an early when you're in the just sort of in the vomit stage, when it's just you're forgetting that you're writing and it's going really well, and and before you read it and you go, oh shit. Um, but that that is sort of that you know the Ginsburg first thought, best thought moment mm -hmm. where you're just in that in that flow. Um, Good. Yeah, so vomit is arousing. Vomit can be arousing. Is arousing. Uh, Carl, take note. So when I'm in labor and I'm vomiting, it's going to be really arousing. Whisper in her ear. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the hot well, tip. When he's vomiting, though. When he's, is he going to vomit? He may pass out. He may Did vomit. Did you pass out during no, it? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> Good. Um, all right. Well, that was really exciting, guys. So um, I think that... Uh, I don't know. Who's going to get the next question? Is it going to be Charlie or Joe? I'm not afraid of you. Okay, Charlie, it's going to be you. <laughs> wow. We're going to do one more gift card to Sweet Leaf, guys. One more gift card to Sweet Leaf. <clears throat> you guys write really awesome questions. <laughs> do you get your writing motivation more from other people or yourself, not that you are not a person. <laughs> <laughs> Who asked this question? That's a great question. 
Anyone? Anyone? Did someone ask and then leave? <gasps> oh no. Oh. It was a ninja. Well, we're just this is gonna go to the next Motiva question. You still you still need to answer. Motivation. That, I'm very motivated. But uh no, I, I get up at around seven every morning and uh, I live by myself. So I tend to do a lot of uh writing of new text in the morning. Um, before I turn my phone on and call people and I'm kind of in that lucid post dream state. And then I go to work and do everything I need to do and get home around eight or 9 PM. And then I edit what I wrote that morning and repeat the cycle again. And I do that Monday through Friday. And then, um, Saturdays, I sometimes will spend the whole day if I have the whole day to myself and then Sunday's my family day. But, um, I have a lot of writer friends and I'm of uh, I'm of the breed who um, ce celebrates the success of others. So um, I have friends are constantly publishing. They're con I have friends all over the world. I have a lot of friends in Latin America, and uh, my Facebook feed is it's con people are constantly publishing, and um, I don't look at that. Uh, I, I I use it as encouragement. You know, I, I use that as as positive energy to to advance whatever project I'm working on to to get it to the next level. So I'm inspired by other people's writing and motivation and professionalism. Um, but I'm motivated on my own. If I, if I lived by myself on the moon, I would probably do the same thing. Wow. In a spacesuit. Hot! That arouses me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that Facebook was for when you actually sit down to write, you turn on Facebook so you can get distracted. It's a terrible distraction. I don't, I don't do you... it. Yeah, I don't do it. No. no. Okay. Well, guess you. Thank you for answering that question. I'm going to give you the gift card. You yeah. have some coffee for that crazy schedule. All right. Yeah. All right. Ten dollars. Totally. Yeah, man. Get 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 two lattes. <laughs> Go for it. All right, Joe. This means it's your you're up. Okay. And you know what? Whoever asks this question, if I can find it, I can find it in the magic here. I found it. I found it. You know what this is? This is a gift certificate for in-store purchase at the Astoria Bookshop. Oh, cool. Yay books! Yay books! The <laughs> only currently the only general-purpose bookstore in the borough of Queens. Wow! Wow! Do you know that we have like four breweries in this neighborhood, and we have one general-purpose bookstore in this whole borough? That's mad. <laughs> it's crazy. But go buy a book there with this gift certificate. Whoever asked this question, let's see, Joe, what you're going to get. <laughs> this question's actually addressed to you, which breaks the rules, but works out really well for whoever asked. <laughs> Joe, how did you get the inspiration to write about Paris? Did you travel there? Who asked this question? All right. You get it. I did travel to Paris uh, to do research. I went in 2011 and 2012, but uh, as far as the inspiration, um, I several years ago I read a book called Paris Noir, Black Paris, by a guy named Tyler Stovall. It's all about the history of African Americans in Paris starting in the 19th century and going up through the 1980s, and you know Josephine Baker and blacks who who fled the US because of the horrible racism and they found they found welcoming arms in in France um, 
so uh, black soldiers in World War One were welcomed yeah, and were were and the people in in France and the countryside when they liberated France were, were just so grateful to them and they not that they were without racism it was a, but it was a different a very different kind of racism um, it was the racism of exoticism you know blacks were were considered to be primitive and exotic and wild and, and you know you know Josephine Baker got famous dancing around in a skirt of bananas you know so I, that that fascinated me and for for a long time you know P paris has been a refuge for for uh artists of all colors but in particular african americans being james baldwin and beaufort delaney was a painter and i just thought that was that was fascinating so i think that that's and what was happening in Paris in the 20s was in very many ways an extension of what was going on in Harlem. So that's where the inspiration came from. Very good. You lucked out with that question addressed directly that's to the person question. who got it. That's a good question. That was great. Um, okay, I'm going to ask two more questions. These are going to be lightning round for all three of you to answer. Uh -oh. And this is an amazing prize, guys. Both of these questions get this prize. Uh, very generous owner here of the LSE bar, Brian Porter, also has a great place a couple blocks down the road called The Gantry. And uh, they have amazing food. And they serve until 11. And if you get this gift certificate, you can go right on down there and feed yourself with it. <laughs> or you can come back next month and eat there before you come here. <laughs> Recruitment. <laughs> Recruitando. Okay, so... For the first gift certificate to the gantry, what book do you wish you had written? The Thief's Journal, Jean Genet. Beloved by Toni Morrison. Uh, Lewis Hyde's The Gift. Wow, you guys all had good, quick answers. Who asked that question? Yeah! Good question. Crown her. <laughs> wow. Are these books that each of you reread uh, or just really admire? Both. Both. I, I just admire the shameless honesty. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how much. I read the Thieves. I read all of those Jean Genet books uh, in the late 90s when I first discovered him, but I just thought, wow, this guy is not ashamed to say anything. You know, and I, who knows how much of it was fiction? Because I've seen a lot of interviews with him and it's, he, he's kind of, if there's ever been an unreliable narrator, uh, he's definitely in the top 10. But, um, you know, even if half of it's true, it's, it's just it's so audacious and desperate and, and beautiful for the most, in the most fucked up way. Um, all right, so we got one more gift certificate for the gantry right here. And it's going to go to um, the asker of this question. How many, and we might, we can amend it slightly for Rob possibly. Um, interpret this as you will. How many failed novels do you have in your drawer? Who asked this question? Good one, Laura. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Let's let's end the evening and talking about failure. Aborted aborted projects. Aborted projects. Uh, I wrote my first novel when I was twelve. It was called. 
It was called Conrad, City of the Demons. Nice. Ooh, I like <laughs> it. it. That's was, a good title. I like it. It was all of, it was about this uh, this drifter who drifts into this town and this this kind of this desert town and everyone's possessed by demons. And then I re I, then I decided to rewrite it as a romance. <laughs> Because I wanted it, I wanted it to get published by Harlequin. Remember those Harlequin romances? Yeah, yeah. So I changed it from Conrad City of the Demons to Hearts of Fire. Nice, <laughs> love um, Unfortunately, that sounds like a success. It's not. It's not. Th- th- these were written in pencil in a spiral notebook, mm-hmm. and they they no longer exist. Aww. Unfortunately, I wish they did, but alas. I only have like a, I think there's three aborted novels. There's three I can think of, but then there's those uh, weird stories that you get maybe you know eight, nine, ten pages in, and you don't know if they were meant to be a short story or novella. But I had these, th- I had this vision for three long stories that I got. It meandered toward the middle and realized I don't, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, I have a better idea, so uh, that's why I outline. Now I don't I don't I don't outline and like stick to it a hundred percent, but I um, at least give myself a roadmap. Go, it, it is possible to get to the end of the story, but mm. then I find a better way. I find a more interesting way and veer off that path so it, it's not so mechanical. But uh, I had to learn the outlining. Some people can just uh, seat of your pantsers. Like I admire that. They can just think of a character in a situation. They can think of scene one and that character will take them through the end of the novel and it's this very like psychic journey. I can't do that. I'm like kind of 50-50. I start with a framework and then improvise and make it interesting as I go. But I've wasted two or three years of writing novels that I deleted. Seat of your pantsers is like yeah, a new there's term the novel writing. Would... There's the outliners, and they call them pantsers. So, <laughs> outliners are like the what per, person, personality type A, you know, the, the controlling type, where it's like, this is going to be my exact trajectory. And then there's the people like my mentor, Mayra Santos Febres, one of the most beloved novelists in Puerto Rico, starts with a character, and like, she literally gets in the car with the character, and the character takes her through the novel, and she somehow, she's written five or six novels that way, and I, yeah, I think it's amazing, but that's mm. not me. Panzer? Pan- two. Two. We'll two. Two. Yeah. two. Aborted novels? Two aborted novels, yeah. Um, yeah, just sort of help me figure out how to write, and sort of deal kind of tangentially with, with the same material, mm. I think, yeah. when I was struggling with this. Yeah. Yeah, those those ones that end up in a door are, are just as important to write. Yeah. 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 I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. At the time it's really painful to like put it in the drawer, but you know, it, yeah. It's so, all part of the process. That's a great question, Laura. That was a good question. Very yeah, good question. Very good question. Mm-hmm. You guys, let's give a big round of applause to all three of our writers. Charlie Vasquez, Joe Conco, Rob That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.